0: You might know that our name, Kerning Cultures, comes from a phrase in type design. Kerning, by definition, is adjusting the space between letters to make a word easier to read. Our name is a metaphorical thing. We like to think of our stories as the spaces in between cultures. But today, we have a story that is literally about kerning, about type design, And it's the kind of story that, we hope, will change the way you think about the words you type when you're texting, when you're emailing, or when you're trying to find that perfect caption for a social post. I'm Hibba Fisher, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures, radio documentaries from the Middle East.
1: <laughs>
0: and one story that always kind of captures my imagination is <laughs> you know, the streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures.
1: Okay, I'm going to start for this one from the top here.
0: Today's story comes to us from a new contributor, Jad Khadil.
1: You know that thing when somebody tells you not to think about an elephant, so you think about an elephant? It's kind of the same thing with reading a word. It's pretty much impossible to look at a word you know and not read it. We read thousands of words every day, much of it without actually trying to read them. There are the billboards and storefronts we read when we drive by without thinking. We read novels and books with purpose. And then there's the words on screens that hold our attention for hours a day. Get ready for another wild news cycle. Most of us don't really think about how those words came to us, how they were designed, or who designed them. They just exist, and we read them. But Nasri Khattar obsessed over words.
2: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) His favorite thing was to read the dictionary, (laughs) believe it or not.
1: This is Nasri Khattar's daughter, Camille Khattar.
2: He had a dictionary next to his bed, and he would uh, look up words and try to remember them and use them.
1: He was a Lebanese-American architect, and he had this subtle but big idea to change the way we read Arabic. It became his lifelong obsession. This is him giving a lecture at the American University of Beirut in 1995.
3: Now, remember, the accusation was that I was interfering, ruining Arab culture, which is the exact opposite of, of what I'm doing.
1: It was a presentation to staff and students right at the end of his life. The life that he'd spent tirelessly campaigning for his Arabic writing system to be recognized.
3: Now, as I look around, we invited here some ministers and people concerned in Lebanon to come and listen to me. I knew they wouldn't come. For for 47 years, I've been trying to get them to listen. They don't want to listen. I, I, I You know, Jesus called the people who didn't want to listen to me, called them pigs or swine. I don't care anybody, but I don't forgive them. I don't forgive them. Maybe history will forgive them, but I doubt it.
1: So this is how Nasri Khatar ended up. Tired, defeated, and maybe a little bitter. But to understand this, we have to go back to the beginning. So we're going to start in 1911, when Khatar was born. At the beginning of the 20th century, Arab authors had a problem. They wanted to print books to read. But printing in Arabic was easier said than done. Let me explain. In English, each letter is separate from the next letter. That makes it easy to build a typewriter. Separate keys can print words that are easy to read in English. And the 26 letters easily translate to 26 keys on a typewriter. In Arabic, letters are connected together. It's like writing with cursive in English. But in Arabic, there are literally hundreds of ways to connect the letters. Their shapes change depending on where they are in the word at the beginning, in the middle, or at the end. There's 1,400 possible shapes for Arabic letters. So any printing press would have needed hundreds of blocks for each shape. Imagine how much space you'd need for every letter. Imagine how expensive it must have been. Arabs weren't the only ones that had this issue. In India, individual publishers changed the way their script looked until eventually a consensus was formed. In China, they simplified their script from the top down. But in the Arab world, the Egyptians held a contest.
4: the Academy of Arabic Language in Cairo, launched a competition, calling for the reform of Arabic script.
1: This is Yara Khouri, an Arabic typography researcher at the American University of Beirut.
4: 184 proposals came in. And you can categorize these proposals into four categories. The first category was Latinization, which was greatly opposed.
1: Latinization, writing Arabic using the Latin alphabet. So bat becomes B, tat becomes T, scene becomes S, and so on. But in the 1900s, because of the close bond between Arab identity and the Arabic script, this wasn't a popular idea.
4: The second one is original letter design. So some of the proposals completely designed new letters, very um, awkward-looking letters and they required de-learning.
1: Asking people to learn a whole new alphabet, again, not ideal. And the third proposal was this complicated suggestion having to do with short vowels and grammatical cases in Arabic. But instead of solving the problem, this would have just added more shapes to the alphabet.
4: The fourth one is the one of interest to us here, the reduction of letters. And this is where the Nasr-Khattar story comes in of unified Arabic.
1: And what, what is that story?
4: That story. <laughs> um, okay. His big eureka moment was in 1932 in this university at AUB.
1: That's the American University of Beirut. Qatar was just 21 at the time.
4: He filled in for a sick teacher of Arabic typewriter typing skills. In an effort to introduce the class and welcome the class, he typed ahlan wa sahlan.
1: That means welcome in Arabic.
4: There are two has in ahlan wa sahlan. By mistake, he typed an initial ha in Ahlan, and then he typed the same ha, that should have been a medial ha, in Sahlan.
1: So basically he typed the wrong shape for the letter ha. It was as if he wrote a capital letter in the middle of a word in English, except it looks much worse. But then he took a step back, studied the word, and had an idea.
4: I think then and there, he experienced that moment where he decided that, well, it is very legible. Why do we need to change the letter form, shape, when it's completely legible. And after that, this is his life story.
1: He set about this plan to simplify the Arabic alphabet. His goal was to bring those 1,400 letter shapes down to 30, 30 disconnected letter forms that were still legible and could be easily laid out on a typewriter. He called it Unified Arabic.
4: So that's how it started. I think uh, Khattar saw the hurdles. He was very much aware of them, but he also saw the potential and he was a dreamer, and he was a perseverer. And that required a lot of patience. He knew he had a mountain to climb, and it wasn't a hill. I think that Khattar believed that if the Arab world had adopted unified Arabic, it would have played a very big part in decreasing the illiteracy rates.
1: So that was another one of his goals, that his font would make it simpler and cheaper to print things, and that that would make reading accessible to more people. And for first-time Arabic learners, they would only have to learn 30 letter shapes instead of hundreds.
4: I think he understood mainly the the link between language, uh, which is disseminated with type, and power.
1: Khatar was aware of the implications of his project. But first, he had to deal with the technology of the time.
4: He wanted to find a simple solution for typing Arabic on the typewriter of the 1930s. So to do that, he, his first step was that Qatar needed somewhere to um, test his Unified Arabic on the typewriter. And the logical solution was IBM, who was producing the typewriters of the time.
3: This is the best thing that's happened to typing since electricity. The IBM's electric typewriter.
1: Qatar started working for IBM as a consultant, and then the head of the company became personally interested in Unified Arabic. Having IBM behind Qatar was a big deal. They were basically the Google or the Apple of the 1940s. It was a good look for them too. And if it was successful, they could expand in the Arab world and make a lot of money. And Khatar, he needed their help and resources to build the actual machines that could print Unified Arabic. So it was a win-win. At the time, Khatar had moved from New York with his wife and family. But being based in the U.S. raised some eyebrows in the Arab world.
4: The public in general was very suspicious of Khatar's invention. First, he came from the USA, a Western colonizing power somehow with its, whether it was physically colonizing or technologically colonizing.
1: Having a huge company behind him wasn't enough. He needed governments too. IBM tried to help him woo governments. They hosted a fancy gala at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. They sent him to Cairo to the court of the Egyptian king. At some point, he did convince the newspaper al Ahram to print a test run of the newspaper using his font, but that's the furthest he got with Egypt. He needed to be in New York to develop the technology that could deliver Unified Arabic. In the meantime, he would have to travel back and forth.
2: He worked around the clock. He never stopped. I've never seen anyone work so hard as my dad.
1: At home, his daughter Camille says he was a family man. Throughout all of this, he worked as an architect to provide for his family.
2: He was an extremely good provider. He would do all the shopping, and he would cook our dinners. My mom wasn't a great cook, or let's just say that they were a very good team. She would cut everything up and prepare everything, and then he'd put it all together. So he'd say, you know, baby, I need the mushrooms now, or baby, could you give me the onions now?
1: (laughs) Once Khatar had figured out the technology piece with partners like IBM, he knew the next step was to be in the Middle East to persuade the right players that Unified Arabic was the best way to be printing. So eventually he relocated with his family to Beirut. Meanwhile, he worked full-time as an architect, and after work, he refined his font by studying calligraphy.
2: When he would work, he would show me a new letter, and he would uh, project it onto the wall and ask me what I thought of it. And of course, I thought it was great.
1: <laughs> and remember, these 30 letters, when you strung words together, were still completely disconnected. So Khattar thought the more beautiful the letters were, the more acceptable they would be to governments and readers. Because of how many variants it has in handwritten Arabic, he struggled to find the right shape for one letter in particular.
4: There's a video recording, if I want to be romantic about this, of Nasri Khattar giving one of his final lectures at the U.B. He's holding endearingly to his meme letter. The
3: meme here, I made for this letter, I doubt if you believe me because you think I'm exaggerating, nearly a thousand sketches before I at this. Now it is copied as if it is their own by the copiers. You know, they reach it right away.
2: He loved his meme. He he just loved it. He thought it was the best letter that he had ever designed. Well, he loved everything he did, and his letters were just... All those letters are just so beautiful to look at. They, they look like drawings. They look... They're just... Um, they're just so much prettier or more beautiful than any other type I've seen in Arabic. Of course, um, <laughs> I'm biased, but um, I just love looking at them. I roll them out sometimes and take a look at them. And I have all the originals here. I didn't give those away.
1: There were a lot of setbacks for Khatar, but he kept on adjusting and making marketing materials. There was a book that demonstrated how easy it was for children to read his letters. There was a game like Scrabble, test runs of newspapers, signs on movie theaters. But every time his response to a new setback was to make something new.
2: Initially he would he would react very well by creating something new that would surpass, you know, what had already been done. But obviously as time went on it just it just got harder, right? There were there things just were not happening.
1: Camille watched her father dedicate his entire life's work to making it easy to print and read in Arabic, to this idea, even though nobody was embracing it, not the governments and not the public. But probably the closest he got to having a government implement unified Arabic was in Tunisia.
2: One day, we were sitting at home in, um, in Beirut, where we lived, and there was a knock on the door, and it was a, it was a telegram. It was from, it was from President Bourguiba. And he was just amazed. He's just looking at this telegram and he said, Bourguiba wrote to me and wants me to come to Tunisia. So Bourguiba told him that if he could, you know, get in Tunisia, that he would definitely
4: roll out his fonts.
1: Khatar had realized that Unified Arabic's best hope of success was mandatory adoption by government.
4: I think with time, he realized the only way to get it into mainstream was up-down by contacting uh, government officials and high-ranking officials. And uh, in my research, I found out that he had made booklets for uh, Bourkeba of Tunis, Hafez al-Assad of Syria, uh, Abdul Nasser of Egypt, talking to them and trying to present his idea.
1: But he came back from Tunisia empty-handed. Bourkeba didn't meet with him and Qatar couldn't sell other Tunisians on unified Arabic. By the 1980s, electronic equipment was on the rise. Khatar did his best to adapt unified Arabic to new technologies, like dot matrix typing, transfer type, and other stuff you probably haven't heard of if you're under 40. But of all the setbacks Qatar had overcome, the biggest hurdle yet was just around the corner. Khatar's type was built for a specific time and specific technology. So when computers came around, they could write Arabic script in a way that was totally impossible in the age of the typewriter. Camille remembers paying a visit to a software company in the U.K. to see if they would be interested in using unified Arabic.
2: And he said, you know, we don't need, um, we don't need unified forms because we have this software that does it automatically. So I went back and I told my dad, and he just, you know, he just looked crestfallen and he was tired and he'd been fighting for years, maybe 60 odd years. He, He never really gave up, but... It just, it just became so, so difficult for him. And uh, I think he was quite depressed at the end of his life. And it's very sad to think that he was depressed and unhappy because he wasn't able to see the fruits of all his labor.
1: Khatar's unified Arabic fonts were built for a specific time and specific technology. So when computers started writing the Arabic script, there was no longer a need for the kind of thing Khatar had dedicated his entire life's work to. But he promoted Unified Arabic until the end. By the time he was 83, he was still pushing for it. Which brings us back to that lecture at AUB in 1995.
3: If you lose your language, you lose your nationhood, you lose your culture, you become just somebody belonging to the Western world.
1: In this lecture, you can really hear him reflect on his accomplishments and achievements. But you can also hear how despondent and angry he became.
3: There is nobody to go to here. For 40 years, I've been trying to get them to listen. For 40 years, for God's sake, for 40 years, let this penetrate this audience. I can't do it. That's why I'm giving this lecture. And these people don't want to come and listen. I don't believe for a minute that this will die with my death. Because it's so logical. It is irreversible. This is the last thing I have. This is my last testament. Please read it, somebody. or you
2: want me to read it. Can you read it? I think he he just gave up. He broke his ribs. He had osteoporosis, so he would um, step out of bed and his bones would break. They were very brittle. So uh, he contracted pneumonia in the hospital and Then he couldn't breathe.
1: Nasri Khattar died on August 1st, 1998 from pneumonia. He died without ever realizing his ambition to make it easier to read Arabic in the modern world. Did his work end up influencing the way that we read Arabic today or the way that Arabic type is designed today?
4: Um, I'm not so sure. I'm not sure it influenced type designers per se, but I am sure it can influence learning Arabic a lot.
1: And this is something Yara saw firsthand.
4: My daughter was, I think, six. And I showed her a booklet he had designed called Shouf Baba Shuf. She was actually starting to learn the Arabic letters. And it's very hard to get the Arab youth to read Arabic. They are almost very resistant to it. I couldn't believe that she wanted to read on. She caught, caught on so quickly, she was actually flipping the page to continue reading."
1: Type designers and graphic designers I talked to about Khatar are so fascinated by him. They know his work is important, but they're trying to figure out how to use it. Researchers like Yar also wonder what would have happened if Khatar's fonts made it into this world not only making it easier to teach Arabic, but also perhaps influencing how easily present-day softwares could display Arabic.
4: The Western world keeps on showering us with technologies, technological devices. Let's consider the iWatch, okay? The iWatch doesn't read Arabic at this stage. It's very hard to read it. So why are we still there where we haven't adopted or adapted some of the letters so that they can be legible at very small sizes on a very small screen in our wrist, for example?
1: You're probably listening to the story on your phone, and maybe afterwards you'll use it to message a friend or write a comment on Instagram. All the letters you type with, they were designed by someone. Someone like Khatar, who would have put years and possibly decades into their work. Some ideas work, and they stick. Others don't. In Khatar's case, it didn't, no matter how badly he wanted it to. This is the announcer at AUB that day, reading Nasri Khatar's last testament, as he called it, at his request to the audience. Maybe the world would have been different if Khatar had found the success he wanted. Maybe children would have grown up learning Arabic from his version of Shuf Baba Shuf. But it didn't happen like that. And so Nasri Khatar's grand plan all but died when he did. Aside from the few designers and academics who study it today, Unified Arabic has become a relic for a time when things very nearly changed, but didn't.
3: I think this this is a very interesting testimony, and I think it needs a...
4: Thank you very much. I think this needs a seminar, not a lecture or a presentation. It needs a... I
3: apologize for the length of time. I Uh, hope you were with me.
0: This episode was produced by Jad Khalil with editorial support from Alex Aitak, Dana Balut, Bella Ibrahim, and me, Hibba Fisher. Sound design by Alex Aitak and Mohamed Khreizat. And thank you to Christina Martinez for helping us to record Kimil's interview. Dana Balut is also our editor, and Bella Ibrahim takes care of our marketing. Kamil Khattar today is still advocating for her father's fonts, with the help of some other type designers, and you can download Unified Arabic fonts online. We'll link to them from our website. Yara Khuri wrote a book about Nasri's life. It's called Nasri Khattar: A Modernist Typotext. We'll link to it along with some photos of Nasri and his Unified Arabic font. And seriously, you must go look at all of this. I know you're probably imagining what 30 disconnected Arabic letters could look like, but it honestly surprised our entire team to actually see what that meant in real life. That's all in a link in this episode's description. Lastly, I want to take another moment of your time to ask you to check out our Patreon page. Our episodes are free for you to listen to, but they take a lot of work that does require money, and your financial support of Kerning Cultures really goes a long way. Patrons get cool swag from us, bonus episodes, and more. So go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Cultures to learn more and support this show. Thanks for listening. Until next time.